This morning we continue our studies in the book of Genesis as we're wrapping up the final few weeks looking at the life of Abraham, which we are calling the difficult journey of faith, which is the look at Abraham's difficult journey of having faith and then too often not having faith. And we do this so that we may learn what it means to live with faith. Because as we read in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please who? Impossible to please God. Now, we're going to be in chapter 22 of Genesis today. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, There's Bibles in the seat in front of you. We'll have it on the screen, but I always think it's beautiful practice to open up your own word uh, because it reminds you when you get home to open up your word during the week as well. Now, this week, school begins for most everyone, students and teachers alike. Are we excited for the beginning of the school year? No, 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 because you're going to miss your mom, right? Yeah. Now, one of the major things that happens that we don't love about school is test taking. Anybody love taking tests here? No. No, I always pray for anybody who says, yeah, you did, didn't you? You did, yeah. My wife was like a 4.0 student through high school and college until her final year when she met me. And then I took it down to a 3.8. I cost her valedictorian. I think she still holds a little bitterness in her heart. I hate testing because I was never really good at it, um, and they're very, they stress me out, as I'm sure they stress all of you out. Testing goes back to the earliest of civilizations at the beginning of time to evaluate qualifications and skills and knowledge. For example, in ancient China, the, they would have these things called imperial examinations, and they were conducted um, to selected government officials, uh, and, and, and they were to see how much these government officials knew about Confucius and his teachings. Uh, Now, I wouldn't use Confucius and his teachings, of course, but it does make me wonder how much better off we would be as a country if our electorate leaders had to go through an exam on the Bible before they could fill their role. Amen? (laughs) Someone's really excited about that. Now, uh, there were some interesting facts I looked up about testing. For example, um, one person that you should give God glory for bringing to this earth was a man named Frederick J. Kelly. He is the man, the very first person who came up and developed multiple choice questions back in 1914. Can you imagine what our life would be like without multiple choice questions? Don't even thank that man one day. I know he's in heaven. Uh, one of the longest standardized tests is the MCAT. The medical college admission test, which lasts seven and a half hours, I read. That's why I'll never be a doctor or anything. Without Google, can anybody tells me, tell me what SAT, the SAT stands for? I feel really bad for saying this, but Dom, of all the people I thought would know that, I was not expecting the electric guitar player, right, the rock and roller. So once again, you continue to impress me. The the SAT was actually originally developed uh, in the the 20s as an IQ test before it became a test for college uh, or college uh, admittance, if I can get that out. The earliest exams in ancient times were not written. They were oral in nature. So they had to go before their instructors, and they had to give all of their answers orally, which is not great for any of you who suffer from glossophobia. But whether it's written or oral, you can all agree, tests can be very, very hard. I always struggle the most with math tests, usually because I didn't study. 
I remember one student who, he loathed math tests like me, and he said, I am so bad at them that if I had 50 cents for every failed math exam, I'd now have $6.30. Some of you are Googling glossophobia right now. That's why you didn't get that. I bring all these fun facts and these history up here because today we're going to see Abraham take a test. We are going to see him take the hardest test that any person on this planet has probably ever had to take. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, and offer him, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come to you again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knives. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but there's no lamb for the burnt offering. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, which was usually a bunch of stones piled together, and then wood on the top. Then verse 10, the Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from afar and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And when Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you, if you have done this because, and not have withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of, that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. If you sit here today as a Christian, as someone whose faith is in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, 
as someone who believed that Jesus Christ died and arose again for your sins. Sins of which you have repented and turned to him. You must know, be prepared and expect that your faith that you have in your life will be tested. All throughout the Bible, you see God testing his people. You see it here with Abraham. You see it with the Israelites in the wilderness. You see it with Gideon when he had this army to go up against another army and and God kept whittling down the army so everybody would know that it was God who brought the victory. You see it as Jesus is led into the desert. These are just to name a few. And there's nothing, no verse that I can find in the Bible that says that at some point God decided to stop testing his people. So we should not be surprised when our faith is tested. Now, I don't think any of us are going to ever be asked to sacrifice our firstborn. There's a lot of cultural and historical implications which we do not have the time to go into. And there were special circumstances, which we're going to see at the end of our message, for what God is calling to Abraham to do. But I don't think we're going to ever, ever have this call put on our lives. Thank God. Thankful for that, Evan? Yeah. But you will be tested nonetheless. Now, when preaching a message like this, people sometimes ask me, how do I know when it is God who is testing me? And I have asked myself this question. But as I've thought about it more and grown in my life, I do not think it's a question that we should ever be distracted by. Too many times in our lives, things happen to us, and then we're like, why is this happening to me? Where is this coming from? And in reality, it's just a distraction. Because unless God appears to you in some supernatural way, which is somehow how he often communicated with Abraham, you never really know when God is testing you, has orchestrated a test for you, or where he is just allowing the natural course of life and your faith to provide an opportunity for you to be tested. I mean, I guess the other way you would know is like the word of God. If you're ever reading something in the Bible and it tells you to do something or not do something, you're, in that moment, you're being tested if whether you're going to be obedient. Like 2 Corinthians 9, it says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must of us each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So let's say you're reading that as a, as a new Christian, and you realize that you're not giving to support the work of the Lord, you're not supporting your church or, or, or missions or supporting the poor. And in that moment, when you read that and the Holy Spirit's knocking on your heart, there comes the test of whether you're going to be obedient to God or not. So this is, that's another kind of test that might come directly from God. But Once again, I think it's a distraction when we're trying to figure out why something is happening. Because no matter where it's coming from, what is important remains the same. And that is how we respond. How we respond. And here's the crazy part. You and I, as Christians, should have a desire. We should want to be tested. We should welcome testing. Look at David here in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. 
when is the last time you have prayed a prayer like this? God, show me any darkness in my heart. Show me any sin in my heart. Show me where I lack faith in my heart. When is the last time you prayed a prayer like this? I can't remember the last time I prayed a prayer like this. And I, this week, as I realized I don't pray a prayer like this, it scared me to pray this. I'm like, I don't want to know. But we should want to know. We should want to be tested. Why? Because as Adrian Rogers once said, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Even though testing is usually a negative thing that we do not enjoy, they serve good purposes. They they reveal what we know. They, They reveal how well we can apply what we know. They reveal if we are uh, ready to move on or if we, we have lessons that we need to repeat. Testing serves good purposes in our lives. Now, when it comes to God, there's an extra purpose that it serves when he tests us or allows us to be tested that goes beyond the purpose of a normal test. And that is his tests reveal if we have any idols in our lives. They reveal if we have any idols in our lives. Tim Keller once gave, gave a great definition for God. He said that God, and we all have one, is the non-negotiable thing in your life. That's your God. Whatever is most sacred in your life, whatever is important above everything else, whatever you will say yes to, and you say no to everything else that touches this, that is what your God is. When people say that I'll come to the God of the Bible as long as he doesn't ask me to stop this or to start this, then you're not coming to God at all. What you're saying is this is my God and I'm happy to read my Bible and I'm happy to pray and I'm happy to go to church as long as he helps me get my true God. Whatever that real God is. It could be your family, it could be your beauty, it could be your control, it it could be your job, it could be money, it could be power, whatever it may be. The Bible calls those things idols. Anything that you love more than God. Because when you come to God and you say, I am acknowledging Lord, you are my Lord and Savior and I'm going to start living for you. He says, good, Now give me everything. Matthew 13, verse 44, says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything that he has, and he buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had so he could buy it. God requires everything of you when you follow him. And if you're not willing to give him everything, then he is not truly, ultimately, your God. That's why being a Christian is one of the hardest things, is the hardest thing you'll ever do, because you have to deny yourself. 
And I point this out because, and especially the idea that being a Christian is the hardest thing you'll ever do is because giving everything to God is a horribly painful and scary process. I mean, if there's anything this, that this story of Abraham and Isaac teaches you, it's that this God that you have, there is no limit to what he will ask you for. There's no limit to what he'll ask you to do. There is no limit to what he'll, not, he'll tell you to stop doing. And even though he's in the process of saving you, it can often feel like at first he's in the process of killing you. There's this author who was married to a missionary. Her name was um, Elizabeth Elliot, and she wrote in one of her books, I don't remember which one, she was visiting uh, some friends, and, and they had sheep, and they were in, and lived in northern Wales. And one day she saw one of her friends who was a shepherd. They were picking up sheep, and they were taking the sheep, and they were shoving them, their head into a vat of antisept, um, uh, antiseptic medicine. And, and they had to do that, submerse their whole head, so they wouldn't be eaten alive by parasites. But for the sheep, it felt like they were getting drowned. So they come up and the sheep would be shaking his head. And then the, the shepherd would have to push him back down over and over again. Totally under. Sheep felt like it was probably being trying to be murdered. And in reality, the shepherd was trying to save the sheep. It's what it often feels like as a Christian. And in that moment, as God's dunking you, and to the trials of life, you, you, you feel this fear and you feel this anxiety. And then as you mature in your walk of faith, you can look back and you say, man, God allowed all of these things. And, and it was horrible at the time, but now I'm better for it. He was just trying to save me. He does this because he wants our hearts He wants to make sure that there are no idols in our lives. That we, not because he's hungry for glory and worship for the sake of his ego, but because if he is the God that created us and, and he designed every aspect of who we are, then he knows how we are to best live and to best prosper in this world, how to best be fulfilled. And so we're only going to find that if we give up the other things that will not fill us and come to him. He wants us to get to the point where we realize the truth of what we sang earlier, Lord, there is nothing, nothing better than you. But we do not realize that until we're willing to give up our idols. Is there anything in your life that you love more than God? How do you know if you love something more than God? Because you will choose it over God. If God gives you a command in the Bible and you choose not to do it, what you're saying in that moment is, I love that thing more than God. That thing is more sacred to me than God. And sometimes it could be simple as things like our pride. We will love our pride more than God. Because we won't ask for forgiveness, like we talked about last week in conflict. We won't go to people because we love our pride more. This is how you know when you pass the test of your faith, when you are obedient to God. 
The Apostle James, he uses Abraham as an example when he's trying to teach people how faith and works, obedience, goes together. He says this in James chapter 2. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. James is not saying he was saved because he did things. But because he did things was proof that he had faith in God. Anytime you have faith in literally anything, there is an action that comes with that faith. How do you know I have faith in the brakes of my car? I step on the pedal. There is always evidence of our faith. It's not what saves us, it's evidence of our salvation. Romans chapter four, Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by by works, he has something to boast about. I did right by God, so he rewarded me, I'm great. Verse 3 says, For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Must be clear, because a lot of this false doctrine is taught today. Salvation comes through faith and belief in him, but evidence for that belief and that faith, the evidence that goes beyond it's just words, just lip service, is obedience to God. That is the proof that you really acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And a prayer of my heart, the prayer that should be of all of our hearts is, Lord, give me the faith to be obedient to you. Be obedient to you. But this is a pretty severe ask, right? There's a difference between this when God tells us and says, hey, go to church on a regular basis and be with other believers and, and, hey, offer your son to me. How could Abraham be obedient? This is an important question to know because in an area where we struggle with obedience, this is what gives us the answer of how to have that faith and say yes. Well, first, he trusted in God to provide. He trusted God to provide. Verse 7 Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, there's fire in the wood, but there's no lamb for a burnt offering. Verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they both went together. Abraham was depending on God. The only thing he could depend on. Uh, He couldn't depend on his feelings. I can only imagine the, the terrible pain that he had contemplating the slaying of his child. He couldn't depend on other people. Sarah was not there. Probably, I don't even know if he told Sarah. I'm not sure she would have been down with this. She was a feisty girl, as we've seen. His two servants were back at camp. In those moments, all he could do was depend on God. Let me show you how he depended on God too. James chapter two, verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. 
from which, figurative speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham goes up that mountain knowing that God might allow me to kill my son, but he can raise him from the dead. He's going to come through. I mean, what does he say to his servants? He says, hey, you guys stay here. We're both going to come back. Why does he say this? Because he believed God. And I love this because I don't believe if I remember, unless I forget a part of one of Abraham's story that he ever saw anybody come back from the dead. It's not, I don't think it's recorded. But so he's, he's thinking really outside the box here. And, and I think to myself how easily we never think outside the box with God. When, when, when something is gone, we think it's gone. Not realizing that God can bring it back in some better way. We put God in the box when he's really outside of it. God made a promise to Abraham. And so, so Abraham's going like, God's going to make a way. Even if it's totally unexpected. This, is, this thought is, is repeated by Jeremiah, the prophet, where he says, Behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh is anything, anything too difficult for me. When God is testing you, or, or he's allowing you to be tested in life, are you thinking outside the box? Do, do you dwell so much on what is happening, and it's so firm in your life, the negative consequences of what's happening, that you don't even pause to think, man, what could God be doing with all of this? How could he come through? I think one of the best things that people can do is when they're going through a really hard test, is to think, man, just to daydream about what are all the things God could do. I remember someone taught me this years ago, so I do it now and again. And it just reminds me, instead of dwelling on this, I'm dwelling on the God who's bigger than whatever this is. You with me, church? And, and, and Abraham, you know why he could depend on the promise of the Lord? Because he'd already seen the Lord work. Like, remember Sarah was barren, couldn't have kids? Bible says they were literally old as dirt when she got pregnant. Like, it was just not possible any other way outside of God. And so he says, I've seen God work in my life before, so I know he's going to work again. And that's a huge struggle for us as Christians, even myself. Like, we'll watch and see God come through for us time and time and time and time again. And then somehow when we face a new situation, we like get a memory lapse and we forget all of that. I know one, one guy, I started doing this, I'm horrible at it, I barely do it. He wrote down every time he saw God come through. Just like I think it's his phone or a notebook. And he goes, every time I come to something new, I go back to that list to remind me that God is bigger and he's working when I don't even know it. What a fantastic idea. I mean, God, if you sit here today as a Christian, God saved your soul. When you did not want it, you did not ask for it, he sent his son. He took his Holy Spirit and put inside of you and his spirit directs and guides you. He prepares a place for you for all of eternity. He's already worked the biggest miracle that can be worked. Man, if God can do this in me, whatever I'm facing through now, he's got this.
You know, and I, and I want to say something specially to dads. I love how Abraham is teaching his son to have faith. And I, and I think sometimes Isaac doesn't get enough credit here. Because Isaac, it wasn't like he was a baby or a child. He was, he was older. He was old enough to understand uh, we have no sheep for the sacrifice that we're making to God. Um, and he was old enough to carry enough wood up the mountain. So he's probably at least a teenager, something that he might have been up into his early 30s. We don't really know for sure. But he was old enough that, like, he could have put up a fight for all of this. But, like, me taking, you know, Evan up the mountain with me and, like, okay, Evan, lay down. I'm going to tie you up. I'd have a little trouble with my six-foot-five son there, right? Abraham was old, too. Like, he was dirt, dirt old. But yet, Isaac trusted his father and the God of his father. And I wonder how much of it came because of what Abraham had poured into Isaac. Verse 7, once again, we'll go back to it. He says, There's wood, there's fire, but there's no lamb. And then in verse 8, he says, God will provide. For every father here, whether your kid is 3, 13, 33, 53, I pray that we would be the kind of men that would teach our children that when whatever comes our way, whatever comes their way, that they would learn from us that God will provide. That we would be the steady voice in their life reminding them God will provide. I pray that they would see men of faith. Even in our failures, God will provide. Amen, men? Now listen, I don't, I want to be careful here because I don't want to pretend that this was like easy for Abraham. Sacrifice your son. You got it, God. Isaac, let's roll. He was human. And we all know what it's like to have faith and say, you know what, I believe God. And we have this faith that we cannot see and then have it be in tension with the emotions and the events of life that we can very well see. And we all know that wrestle wrestling that goes on inside of us. I can only imagine the the turmoil that Abraham must have went through for those two days that he's traveling with his son. It says in in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. I mean, remember, Abraham and Sarah could not have children. She was barren. And then God came along with this promise that they would have a son. Eventually later they told him his name would be Isaac, that that through Isaac, he would have so many offspring, Abraham and Sarah, that, that you couldn't even count them. More than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the seashore. And that the entire world would be blessed. And then for 25 years, nothing, no child. 25 years. Imagine having a promise that meant the world to you and waiting over two decades for it to be fulfilled. And they had so many ups 
and downs in those 25 years. And then the moment comes, his son is born, the son he's been waiting for. He, he can hold him in his arms and touch him and hear him breathing for the very first time. The fulfillment of God's promise. You remember reading the, the last chapter, the joy of his wife. Now, any of you who have gone through miscarriages or struggled to have children, you know, and then you were able to finally to have one, you know the joy of finally being able to hold a child that you can call your own. I remember when uh, Evan was born, Maria and I had, it had been five years of us trying to have kids and and three miscarriages later, and the ups and the low, low downs from that heartache. And then for the first time, I got to hold Evan, our little pirate baby. He came out with one eye open and one closed, and he just kept that way. I think it was too bright for him. And it was just our little pirate. And like for the first time, I could hold him. I could feel the warmth of his little body. To see the joy, the endless joy on my wife's faith, face. And, and that's why we gave him the middle name Nathaniel, which is the Welsh version of the name John, which means that, that God remembers. God has given. If God were to ask the same thing of me, I don't think I would have done what Abraham did. I, I mean, I, I hope I would have. I'm just asking myself, Lord, how did Abraham get to the point where his faith could override his feelings and his fear and his emotion? I mean, like, we all know promises of God. We've all read them. And yet then when the testing comes, we turn away from them. How is he different? I think he's different because of the way that he answered his son. When his son said, hey, like, where's the sacrifice? As he went up to that mountain, he didn't say, look, I'll provide a sacrifice. I'll find the lamb, Isaac. Don't worry, I got it. No, no, no. That was not what was in his heart. That was not what was driving him up that mountain. He said, no, God will provide it. He said, God is going to do it. God will see to it. And then it's not just the fact, what kept him going, kept him moving forward in obedience through the struggle, the probable struggle. It wasn't that God had just made promises. It was the fact that God's promises were dependent upon God. Too often, we look at God's promises, and then we look at our failures, and somehow we believe that our failures are more powerful than God's promises. God says he works all things together for good for those who love him are called according to his name. All things. There's no exceptions. So that means even in our sin and our failure, as we look to him, he can use them for his glory. And so he's walking up that mountain, and I think he just said, man, God's going to do it. God's going to do it. God has to do it. He has to come through. He has to provide. And I think that's the person who passes the test, who walks in obedience, who constantly preaches to themselves, God's going to do it. He's going to provide. He's got this. He's God. He, 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 he. Nothing about I.
And I mean, I mean, what did he call the name of the mountain, the name of that place? The Lord will provide. What's the name of the God we use for that? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. It wasn't the name of the mountain, it wasn't I did it. I had faith. The name of the mountain was God will do it. He will provide. And that's what, exactly what happens. God, in verse 13, says Abraham lifted his eyes at the last moment and looked behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Sometimes God, actually it feels like God always does, he'll wait till the last second to send help. But literally that's only from our human point of view. God is never late. That lamb, that ram had started a journey way before this moment to get him right where he needed to be at the right moment. You know, and and I want to point this out, that God often provides for us in very natural ways. And, And I say this because I feel like we often look for the supernatural. We want lightning and thunder and rainbows and just, you know, we just want visions and this huge, big stuff. But God often provides in very natural ways. I mean, God provides one of the greatest answers to the time of testing in the Bible, and it's just a ram. Probably a dirty, loud, noise-making ram. Just in need. And he does the same for us. He will provide what we need right when we need it, when we look to him. Now, I've had some people say to me, this is pretty mean that God would do this. Pretty severe. And God does do severe things in the Bible. But it's for a purpose. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So there was a point to all of this. God had a message that he was sending, a foundation he was laying. And the foundation that he was laying was the principle of substitutionary atonement. That means the idea of one taking the place of death for someone else. This entire story is laying the foundation for Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. If there were ever a greater picture of Jesus Christ and God the Father in the, in the Old Testament, it is right here in Isaac and Abraham. Abraham who willingly sacrificed his son like God the Father did. And Isaac, like Christ, who was willing to be sacrificed. Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Jesus' coming in Isaac's birth. And on that mount, he saw the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. That for whoever believes will have eternal life in heaven. The beauty of the Bible, the beauty of the stories, the severity of the stories, they're all meant to teach us something. The story teaches us that God 
sent his son to die for us that we may find new life and hope in him. And because of that new life and hope that we find in him, there should be no idol that we're willing to hold on to above him. That there's no part of our life that we should be willing to hold back. That there's no test we take where we cannot depend on him to provide. That we, like Abraham and Isaac, may show those around us the glory of God the Father and Christ the Son, that they may find salvation in him as well. Amen.